America's consuming the left's acid, and it is death by a thousand communist cuts from every angle. We're going to show you each movement and how these movements all go back to the same premise, the death of capitalism. It's the Adrian Slade Show. The presidential motorcade has just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when two shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slade Show. Former police chief Derek Chauvin will be sentenced on June 16 for the murder of George Floyd in a case that sparked nationwide anti-racism protest. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Everything you've seen and hear involving this, involving the climate summit, involving, I mean, just everything, COVID, whatever the case may be, it's all communism. It's all Marxism. And we're going to make the case for that today. But I want to start off with one angle that ushered a lot of this in, and that was the Black Lives Matter movement, the justice for George Floyd, the black square in your Instagram, all of the company's virtue signaling and saying Black Lives Matter. Because, you know, part of me wonders with the whole Derek Chauvin thing, um, if you remember the video, there was a group of kids around, maybe not just kids, younger adults, But they were all filming Officer Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck. The weird part about it to me was the fact that he was just sitting there looking at the camera like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Almost like he was saying, hey, everybody, get your film footage of me. And he had George Floyd on the ground where blood was trickling out, but he had already become incapacitated from the level of drugs in his system. And like I said on the last podcast, the I can't breathe part wasn't because of the knee on his neck. It was because he was going into a cardiac arrest of some sort. He was so worried about getting in the back of the squad car that he was saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, before he was put in the squad car, before they could have him jump out of the squad car and then brought down on the street with the knee to the neck where he was saying, I can't breathe again. But I remember watching that first video and thinking, it's almost like the guy is wanting to be filmed. And if you think about it, with the, everything that happened with the trial, there's, there's word that there was a jury, I think it was an alternate jury that was uh, let go, it was in the news. Um, this juror basically said, uh, yeah, I was worried about the riots, I was worried about the impact of what our decision making would be. Um, well, <laughs> that's pretty telling. Now, that's, he's an alternate juror. That's not like it's somebody who was definitive. But at the same time, yeah, K-A-R-E 11 uh, News, uh, News 11 NBC. I wish it didn't have to happen. Alternate juror reflects on the Chauvin trial. A juror who didn't know she was an alternate in Chauvin's trial details why she supports the former Minneapolis officer being convicted in George Floyd's murder. Um, the woman sat in as an alternate jury. Uh, that found Chauvin uh, guilty of murder is speaking out about what it's like to parse through nearly three weeks of testimony in the former Minneapolis officer's high-profile trial. Um, she basically said that she was concerned. The, the reporter said, did you know that you were going to be an alternate in the case? No, I did not know. 
Christensen, who was the uh, juror, found out. The uh, reporter said, were you uh, disappointed when you found out that you were an alternate? And Christensen said, I was. I spent three weeks of my time getting invested and going through all kinds of emotions. My heart broke a little when he turned and said, number 96, you're an alternate. The reporter said, when you made it onto the jury, how much about the case did you know? She said, I saw the videos, but not in its entirety. I saw two or three times on the news, and I didn't use social media, so I didn't post anything or see anything there. The uh, reporter said, you are the perfect juror in that aspect. You came in with about as clean a slate as anybody could have had, considering how big of a case it was. She said, yeah, I didn't tell them that I saw the settlement run across the bottom of the uh, screen one day. And what she's talking about is the settlement the city gave to the family of George Floyd millions of dollars before the case had finished. We played a clip last week with the mayor saying, yeah, we know he's guilty. Maxine Waters, that was the crux of the last, the first portion of the last podcast was Maxine Waters coming into town, throwing the entire case under the bus. So what do you think would have happened in that scenario? If we go through the court case and he's found guilty of all these charges and all these charges, we are scratching our heads over and going, hmm, this is kind of odd. How is he getting nailed for every single charge? And the jurors are kind of freaked out because they think the whole place is going to burn down. And, and then at the end of it all, they botched the case from a standpoint to where he could easily appeal it. The judge said it himself. So there's a part of me that's thinking, hey, everything's been conspiratorial this past year. COVID-19, uh, George Floyd, down the line, installation of a president. I don't know. Everything's been manufactured. Could this have been a manufactured case? Could Chauvin have been in on it? I mean, they knew each other, sort of. Not really, but they worked in the same nightclub together as security. They say, oh, well, it was a big nightclub. He didn't know it. Come on. Staff meetings? I worked at a place when I was in the early 20s, bartending for a place that had over 50 bartenders. And guess what? I knew all the names. I knew the security guard's names, too. I knew the DJ's name because we had staff meetings. And I'm sure that security guard probably knew somebody else in the security guard team. But they, it's just, it's weird to me that he was going to sit there with this look on his face like, hey, look at me. And then he has a court case that is basically political theater. We get the justice, but then the justice isn't enough for the politicians and the grifters and the AOCs and the Al Sharptons and the Jesse Jackson, who is alive. Jesse Jackson is alive. I didn't know he was still alive. Um, we ha- I thought he was like hanging out with Shock G from Digital Underground. Uh, rest, in, rest in power to uh, Humpty Dump, Hump, the Hump to Hump to Dance. Um, but here's the thing about it all. He has a way of doing an appeal, and they could throw it out under the cover of darkness. That was my first take on this whole thing. They're going to try him of all charges. It's going to look good in the news. It's going to look like justice was served, even though the people that want it to continue on are going to say, ah, justice wasn't served. And then he can quietly appeal it and have it dismissed or lesser sentenced or whatever the case may be. And it's not going to be that you know, publicized. It's going to go under the cover of darkness and no one's really going to know. But then that leads us to what happened right after the verdict was read. Another incident arose. NPR reported Columbus police shoot and kill black teenage girl. Wow. 
Look at the timing. This was from Radley Balco. He said they shot the kid who called for help. No hesitation policing. Um, to which they actually deleted the tweet based on the statements from uh, Michaela Byron's aunt. It was premature holding off until we know more, <laughs> which we learn more. Of course, Ben Crump said, as we breathe the collective sigh of relief today, a community in Columbus that felt the sting of another police shooting as Columbus police killed an unarmed 15-year-old black girl named Michaela Bryant. Another child lost. Another hashtag. Um, well, problem with that was she was armed. She had a knife. But let's listen to her mother, for which she no longer has custody of Michaela Bryant because Michaela Bryant is a foster kid. But let's listen to the mother describe that beautiful angel gone too soon. We lost her. Michaela Bryant. Micaiah was named after a male prophet in the Bible. She was a very loving, peaceful little girl. She was 16 years old. She was an honor roll student. And um, Micaiah had a motherly nature about her. She promoted peace. And that's something that I want to always be remembered. Wow, so she's an honor roll student and named after somebody in the Bible. She couldn't do anything wrong. No, not at all. She wouldn't have pulled a knife on an individual and then have a police officer who she called to the scene come out, assess the situation, and shoot to neutralize her because she was attacking with a knife because she's an honor roll student. And her name comes from the B-I-B-L-E. You know, that's the book for me. You know, uh, I, that wouldn't happen, right? No, never. Nerver. Never. <laughs> Anyways, um, but let's go on. Let's hear how the news media, as, as accurate as they claim that they are, because, you know, they weren't fake news and they're not holding a grudge and they're not carrying a narrative. Um, they are. And listen to this report. If you were sitting down, if you were a housewife or if you got home from work at the normal nine to five and you walked in, you're setting the dinner table, you're watching Wheel of Fortune, you're watching whatever douche celebrity host guest is coming on for the great Alex Trebek on Jeopardy, Katie Couric or George Stephanopoulos or whatever liberal influencer they want to stuff down your throat because that's a part of communism too. They got to have all their influencers in the right place. So they're going to fill the void of Alex Trebek with the guy who did Reading Rainbow because he's a big progressive communist. And then you've got George Stephanopoulos, who was Clinton's war room strategist, who is a reporter for ABC. So after you sat down and watched Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, this is what you saw with Mr. Number One in News, Lester Holt. Mr. I wouldn't do fake news. I'm trusted. Yeah, they selectively edit out. Listen to what they selectively edit out. They edit out the knife. They edit out the 911 part of the call of the knife. It's like a knife just magically appeared. Voila! Shazam! There's a knife! Yeah, just listen to this garbage. Just before yesterday's verdict, a police officer shot and killed a 16-year-old black girl in Columbus, Ohio, saying she was threatening others with a knife. 
Police body cam video was quickly released. Our Kevin Tibbles has that story, and I need to caution you. The images are difficult to watch. Police body cam video shows Micaiah Bryant's final moments. When a Columbus, Ohio police officer responding to a call gets out of his car and seconds later fatally shoots the 16-year-old girl. Authorities say Bryant was threatening two other girls with a knife. It's a tragedy. There's, there's no other way to say it. It's a 16-year-old girl. Officer Nicholas Reardon, who joined the force in December of 2019, was responding to a 911 call. We need a police officer here now. Video shows Reardon approaching a group of young people in this driveway. What the video shows is the female with the knife attempting to stab the first female. Reardon fires his weapon four times. Officers are seen and heard performing CPR. Body camera footage shows a knife on the ground. The city released video from the incident within hours and launched an independent investigation. We have to ask ourselves, what information did the officer have? What did he see? How much time did he have to assess the situation? And what would have happened? if he had taken no action at all. The Columbus mayor pushing for transparency during the investigation. That investigation will help us determine whether or not there was a violation of any laws, policies, or procedures. And if there were, the officer will be held accountable. Officer Reardon has been placed on administrative leave for the duration of the investigation. Meanwhile, tonight here in Columbus, civic leaders are calling for calm. Lester? So the media just lied to you, just gave out... (laughs) alternative facts left out things that are pertinent to the cause it's almost like making an ikea bookshelf without the allen wrench you kind of you kind of need the fact that the knife was involved for this to make sense but and we'll get into how the news media is compromised by communist china but let's listen to one of the protesters the revolutionary and we'll see how this is not about racism or any sort of uh Cause this is more about destruction of capitalism. That's what the power of the people is. We are powerful. We can get change if we want it. Let me tell you, the only reason this system, this capitalist system, remains intact is because the Democrats and Republicans are working together to maintain it. That's why I'm not an independent, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, I'm a revolutionary! Odd how it's capitalism that's the system that needs to be brought down by these people. Of course we know Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization, but I think we need to underscore how the entire uh, racism movement is uh, communist. I mean, this is where critical race theory comes in. This is why they're teaching it in schools and in boardrooms of, of... companies and they're having it shoved down your throat on every television station and to see how they have taken racism and have morphed it into other communist causes is is really amazing i mean the twisting and turning it's incredible how they can do this so watch how they take racism and push it into climate change and the second thing is that yeah i think um a lot of times on um, on even the level of the problems that we're facing, that also doesn't make sense because COVID 
happened, one, partially as a result of some of the economic systems that drive uh, climate change, right? There's some thoughts about the way factory farming allows uh, viruses like this to um, to sort of change themselves more frequently and we're having more outbreaks. So there, that's part of it, but it's also happening in the context of ongoing environmental injustice and climate change. So thinking about right now, right, toxic pollution, we know is one of the reasons that uh, black people are dying at double the rates from COVID, right? There's already a study showing that correlation. And when it first happened, you can basically map frontline communities with COVID hotspots. And so this idea that these things are happening in two separate vacuums isn't true at the same time as like one of the reasons that we couldn't manage COVID and possibly that uh, rates were so high in those communities where people were too poor to stop going to work when they needed to stop going to work, right? So all of these things are happening at the same time and trying to act as though they aren't happening at the same time. Um, both doesn't allow us to attack the problems and the sort of system that is uh, the systems that are creating the problems effectively. Um, it really, it hinders us from, from doing so the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic is racist, right? And it's also due to climate change because of where you live and how you breathe. And it's even so bad that Nickelodeon wants to indoctrinate the kids by pushing a news story on the Nickelodeon network about environmental racism. Black snow, the thick soot that pollutes Pahokee, Florida. There's Cancer Alley, which is an area along the Mississippi River in Louisiana that's lined with oil refineries and air so toxic in New York South Bronx that 20% of children have asthma. What do these cities have in common? They're all examples of environmental racism, a form of systemic racism, where minority and low-income communities are surrounded by health hazards because they live near sewage, mines, landfills, power stations, major roads. In Philadelphia, it's hazardous waste. In San Carlos, Arizona, it's a mining project that would dishonor an Apache sacred site. But it has never been more devastating and harmful than in Duplin, North Carolina, where, believe it or not, the number of hogs outnumber the number of residents. Wow, Nickelodeon, why not stick to the uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, iCarly, Team Umizoomi garbage, you know? I really don't want to learn about environmental racism from Paw Patrol, you know? Actually, you already canceled Paw Patrol, so yeah, that was a while ago because of the, the cop, right? <laughs> Anyways, this is the thing they don't talk about. I mean, here's the things that are in this nugget that they're not even discussing. First off, they're assuming all black people or BIPOCs or POX or people of color or brown and black people, whatever they want to say, that they all live by sewage places and roadways and hog runoff in the, in the agricultural sectors. Um, you're assuming that that's all just black people, brown people, whatever. Uh, there's white people in there There's and they're poor. And there's also people that aren't poor. There's some good neighborhoods built near roadways, built near hog facilities, you know, some nice rural areas out here that uh, a lot of hog farmers are, uh, you know, operating right down the street from. So they assume that it's just going to be 
BIPOC or, you know, people of color living in these neighborhoods. And then where do you plan on moving them to? You got some great utopia that you want to put them at? Uh, this is intended for one particular demographic. It is, it is intended for the kid who's in the middle class to upper class white suburban neighborhood who maybe bought a house so far out in the suburbs that, you know, they're not right by the interstate. They don't have a sewage facility right around the corner. They don't have hog pens with hog runoff right around the corner either. So it's assuming one particular demographic and it's targeting in because they think that they live in this bubble that they go, oh, it must be all all black people that live by sewage stations. Um, it's completely BS, but there's a reason behind it. Again, it goes back to communism. It's all centered on that. In fact, did you know that the hogs that they're growing near the, in Duplin, how those hogs lead to racism? Did you know beef and meat? leads to racism or is stemmed from racism. Yeah, that's how far they have taken this thing. Listen to this lady talk about the rich barbecue culture. How is eating meat racist? I'll gladly tell you. Looks like we've got an oppressor on our hands. So during slavery times, slaves did not get to eat the same things as their masters. They got the scraps that no one wanted. Chitterlings. Now, that black people have overcome slavery, they developed a rich barbecue culture to make up for all the meat-eating that they lost out on. So when you go to the store and you buy a piece of meat as a white person, you are actively taking away a piece of meat that could be being enjoyed by a survivor of ancestral slavery. Eating meat is not only racist, but it's also anti-Semitic. During the Holocaust, Jews did not get to eat meat in labor camps. They ate potato soup which would spill on their bodies, burning them and giving them infections. Now, Jews survivors eat a lot of meat. Brisket. Just let them have that. Stop appropriating. I love it. So all they had was the leftover chitterlings, and that led to the growth of their beautiful, rich barbecue culture. <laughs> I mean, she's just assuming that uh, it's that barbecue culture is the only thing they have going for them. I actually wanted to call the podcast Rich Barbecue Culture because I've never heard of such a thing. They're the barbecue culture, the culture of barbecuing. Um, but here's the funny thing. So we've tied together the fact that police brutality and Black Lives Matter is down with capitalism. You know, they want to destroy capitalism, but then it's also a byproduct of climate change to which meat eating meat is not only a byproduct of climate change, but it's also racism. It's unbelievable. These people can tie any needle together with any thread, but listen to this. So Joe Biden had his little, his little climate summit where he had John Kerry out there. We may play some clips from that. And John Kerry's talking about how, you know, we got to bring things down to net zero. But even if we get it at net zero, it doesn't matter. We're not going to really be there. And not everybody's wanting to be on board with this, which is funny because when we weren't involved in the Paris Climate Accords, we actually outdid them without being in it. But um, the, a Michigan study took his climate proposal that he 
put out in his climate summit and came to the conclusion that they want to eliminate the consumption of beef. I'm not kidding you. Uh, they, I don't know what McDonald's and Burger King has to say about it. I don't know. Fourth uh, of July, you know, we're not allowed to have a Fourth of July celebration because, you know, social distancing and mask and pandemic and coronavirus. But now we're not even going to be able to grill hamburgers and hot dogs. But listen to this uh, report on Joe Biden's meat reduction. Say goodbye to your burgers if you want to sign up for the Biden climate agenda. That's the finding of one study. In order to help hit the Biden administration's climate goals of reducing emissions by 50% from 2005 by 2030, researchers say you'd have to cut about 90% of red meat from your diet. For Americans, that means a limit of four pounds of red meat per year, or break that down further, a single average-sized burger every month. Let's tuck in some more here. Larry Kudlow joins us now. I can hear the refrain from Clara Peller from the grave. Larry going, where's the beef? <laughs> where's the beef? I don't even eat beef, okay? Oh. I mean, I eat chicken and I eat fish. Maybe once a year I eat beef. But the study may be right, but it's the stupidest thing I have ever heard. <laughs> this comes from these ideological global warming zealots who don't understand the havoc and damage they're going to wreak on this country and maybe the rest of the world. Or maybe they do get it and they don't care. See, that's the dirty little secret is that they don't care. They didn't care about destroying all the small businesses in the country over a virus that has a 99.99% survival rate. They just shut everything down. And now we're learning lockdowns didn't make any difference. Closing up businesses had no effect. Social distancing is BS. Mask are BS. All of it was BS. And we're learning that the vaccinations have much more detrimental after effects, but that doesn't matter. They still did what they did. So do you think they're going to care about destroying red meat, the beef industry, agriculture? They're just going to demonize things like you know, hog farming, like we heard in the Nickelodeon article, it doesn't matter. They're going to recreate the environment in their image. Bill Gates is already out there talking about making synthetic beef while he's buying up all the farmland. Why is he buying all the farmland? Why is he making synthetic beef? Why is he saying we need to eat synthetic beef? Why is the UN telling us putting out studies, oh, well, you know, uh, eating grasshoppers and roaches is good for you. And I, I, because they're shifting the market. And we're going to get into, on the other side of the break, we're going to get into how markets are now being created and massaged and engineered and manufactured. Markets that didn't exist because supply and demand, supply and demand used to be just this one thing. I want something these people make it. We now have a relationship. Well, now they're going to indoctrinate you and brainwash you and turn you into a, posi- a, a person who wants to yearn for these products and go after these markets that didn't exist before, that wouldn't exist in a normal situation. So they're just going to demonize, you know, cows farting is killing the planet and destroying the ozone and the atmosphere and what have you. And then they're going to turn around and say, well, you need to eat the impossible beef 
and morning star fake burger burgers whatever and next thing you know you're buying them left and right and now the market was created and they're doing this with the climate change thing but it's all based on wealth distribution it's based on minimizing the the power and the greatness of america the economic stability the engine that was ruining under donald trump under ronald reagan under not really george w bush but you know the the engine that was roaring along anytime that engine starts roaring they have to put a stop to it so that they can minimize your success your growth minimize the fact that you are succeeding and expanding because then you will go along with a great reset. You will go along with a global union because your back's against the wall and they don't, they don't care. They're going to put your back against the wall back in a moment. This is Adrian Slade. You're off to such a great quick start. You said twice getting to net zero is going to be hard, really hard. And uh, just remind everybody that 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 will depend on whether or not we have some breakthrough technologies and breakthrough innovations, number one. But even if we get to net zero, we still have to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So this is a bigger challenge than a lot of people have, have, have sort of really grabbed onto yet. So John Kerry's trying to tell us that we need to get rid of CO2 because I mean, vegetation grows off of CO2. You know, <laughs> he is the most dangerous person in the government right now. First, he's a czar. So he wasn't elected. He was appointed. He's in a position that doesn't exist. He's also somebody who had a financial relationship with, uh, through, <clears throat> through Devin Archer and through, other certain conduits, uh, a relationship with China, with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and what have you. But he also is dug in on this whole thing. He's flying around on private jets telling people we got to stop flying around on airplanes. He's a fraud. But see, he actually is in a position to make something happen. This is why we rejected him in 2004 going up against George W. Bush with his swift boats and whatever. John Kerry is, he, he's, he's devious, but he's dumb. So it's dumb deviousness, right? The guy is an idiot, but at the same time, he walks into money and he walks into power. We don't know why, but he does. But, and, and that could be Dominion voting machines. That could be China. I don't know. I mean, we're in the middle of doing a recount in Arizona, an audit of the recount, and they stop the audit and say we're going to come back later to where I'm thinking, okay, maybe trucks are coming in and dumping off more ballots so that the audit looks good. I mean, we're in a clown show world. But this is the thing. Climate change is and has always been the big ruse that communists use to destroy capitalism, to destroy free markets. They try to say that the externalities are evil and they're detrimental to people's health and they're going to kill the planet. Uh, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. But when you look at the history of Earth Day, which we just went through, 
Let's listen to Walter Cronkite. This will give you an example of how the, how the media hasn't changed. Earth Day, climate change, all of those zealots are still the same, even though climate change itself has been repurposed multiple times. But the premise of destroying capitalism because you need a communist system to rise and doing it under the auspices of capitalism being evil and killing people, that's been the same. That's never changed. That's never wavered. And the media supporting this has never wavered. So listen to Walter Cronkite give you the first Earth Day report back in the 1970s, and this should make you go, wow, our media has never changed. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day, a day dedicated to enlisting all the citizens of a bountiful country in the common cause of saving life from the deadly byproducts of that bounty, the fouled skies, the filthy waters, the littered earth. As a demonstration, its success was mixed beyond expectations here, far below there. No one now can know exactly how many took part. We do have an idea how many planned participation. Student groups in 2,000 colleges and 10,000 lower schools. Citizen groups in 2,000 communities. By one measurement, Earth Day failed. It did not unite. It did attract that broad cross-section of America its sponsors wanted. Not quite. Its demonstrators were predominantly young, predominantly white, predominantly anti-Nixon. Often its protests appeared frivolous, its protesters curiously carefree. Yet the gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through. Act or die. So that's been the message the entire time, act or die. And the fact that he pointed out that it's mainly white people and they're railing against Nixon, which, you know, they looked at Nixon as being like Reagan, which they looked at Nixon being like Trump. Now, I'm not a Nixon fan, but I can see where his bombast and his, I, I don't know. It, it's just, I could see where they would try to put some equivocation in this. But here's the thing. Um, they also talked about unity. Isn't that what we're dealing with right now with Joe Biden going, oh, we just got to be united. Well, he hasn't said it recently. He did right around the time that he was installed. But the unity that he is reaching for um, they're talking about back then because they want everyone to be united in this effort for global warming. You know, we need to all sit down and watch Captain Planet reruns by Ted Turner, who was all about population control. We should now give in to the premise that fossil fuels are going to raise the temperature of the planet to a point where we can't exist. Even though Barack Obama's buying a house, you know, in Martha's Vineyard, right there on the water. Um, they're all buying houses on the water. They're all buying houses in unstable areas that just given the premise of what they're proposing could happen, would decimate their lifestyle or their well-being. But that's okay. They're just going to do it anyways. And let's look at, like, their solutions, their solution is electric cars, which I'm all for electric cars. If you can make a good electric car like like Elon Musk is doing, I'm seeing a lot of Teslas these days. If he can make a good electric car, I'm all about buying it. 
Now, granted, the lithium is all coming from China. So if you want to turn China into the new Saudi Arabia, if you want to turn oil fracking and what have you into the new electric car battery, well, China's ripe with that. So it behooves them to do that. I mean, you want China to do that. And China wants you to do that. They want the Uyghurs out there digging up the freaking lithium. But here's the thing. When you get into the electric cars, there's more behind the supply chain of the energy sector than most people want to, you know, dig and find. And they're going to find out that the supply chain of energy used to power the electric cars isn't really that green. Let's take a listen to the elect the Chevy Volt, the process to recharging these cars. I'm really grateful to be here today. And in fact, this is a chance for me to say thank you more formally. The, the Chevy Volt is upstairs. We'll be able to take a look at it. Thank We've you. got about a thousand photos. Yeah. Is it a plug? <laughs> <laughs> It's as simple as that. <laughs> the batteries are in the trunk? No, the battery in this particular design is a T-shape right down the center and across the back seat area. Because everybody thought we killed the electric vehicle. No, we didn't. It's alive and well. So what's charging the, the batteries right now? What, where, where's, what's the source of a... Well, here. It's, it's coming from the building. I mean, is it? Um, what's our mix of power? Oh, actually, Lansing feeds the building. What's that? Lansing feeds power to the building. So I don't, I don't know. They're. Uh, I bet you they're a bit of coal. Oh, they're heavy on natural gas, aren't they? Uh, right now, the car is charging off of your grid. Right. Well, it would be charging off uh, our grid, which is ninety, about ninety-five percent coal. They don't even know the source of power. They just assume, well, the power company's putting the power in the building. The building's putting the power in the car. That's not how this works. I love how at the end, they get to the the real power maker. Oh, it's coal. It's coal fire fire plants. Uh, Those were the plants that Obama wanted to outlaw. So, yeah, again... The premise of your electric car goes down the crapper when you realize that coal has to help that come about. Yeah, you've got a battery. Yeah, you don't have emissions coming out, but you got to put some sort of energy into it. And you got to plug it in from a coal fire plant. I don't know. The whole thing is ridiculous. But this is how you do it if you want the entire globe to bow down and go, um, we're just not going to be productive anymore. We're not going to progress anymore. We're not going to innovate because of emissions. Uh, I remember back when we were looking at how this, the emissions were going to block out the sun and cause the earth to cool and make an ice age. And then I remember when that same blockage of the atmosphere was going to cause heat to get trapped in. So then we're going to burn to death as ants under a magnifying glass under this greenhouse effect. 
And then we had the ozone layer going away because the hair metal bands are out there spraying their hair up. And so are Madonna and, and all the pop stars of the 80s using aerosols. It's all BS. And you know it's even BS when you see that the Earth Day celebration, celebration of Mother Earth, was started by Ira Einhorn. Yeah, um, seven years after that first Walter Cronkite chronicled Earth Day event, seven years later, police raided Mr. Einhorn's closet in his home and found the composed body of his ex-girlfriend, And it was, they found it inside a trunk. Unbelievable. But these people are zealots for the earth. And they think capitalism is the reason why they can attribute all of these injustices to global warming, which we still don't know whether or not it's happening. Could be sunspots, could be cycles of the earth. It's not 100% attributed to man-made emissions but they want to believe that it is. And you have them using kids like they did with Greta Thunberg. Here's Greta Thunberg given another threat once again. How long do you honestly believe that people in power like you will get away with it? How long do you think you can continue to ignore the climate crisis, the global aspect of equity and historic emissions without being held accountable? You get away with it now, but sooner or later, people are going to realize what you have been doing all this time. So she's always given out these threats. And when you catch her off guard, she doesn't seem to be able to hold her ground. So there was a Q&A on NPR and a lady asked Greta Thunberg a question and just listen to this exchange and tell me if it sounds like somebody is silently coaching this girl and... She's losing her message. She has to double back. She gives out platitudes. Just listen to this. I just wanted to ask you one question. My, I have a nine-year-old daughter. I have three kids. And I told my nine-year-old daughter that I was going to be speaking with you. And I said, what do you think about the climate change? Climate change. And she said, the earth is on fire and we're all going to die soon. And I asked her how that made her feel. And she said it made her feel angry. What should I tell my daughter and how should I help her and the youngest generation bear the emotional toll of the actions that we're taking, fossil fuel companies are taking to destroy our planet? Well, it's, it, thank you for your question. Um, that's a big, big question. And I know that there are many young people who feel angry and sad because of all the things that some people are are doing to to this planet and to to our futures and to to the most affected people already today and that's very understandable it would be strange if we didn't feel that way because then we wouldn't have any empathy um so i would but of course there is still much hope and if we choose to take action then we can do this and there i mean there's unlimited things that we can do. And if we choose to act together, there are no limits to what we can accomplish. And of always, the best um, medication against anger and anxiety is to take action yourself. 
So that's what I would tell her uh, to to take action herself because that will make her feel so much better. That's what it did to me at least and so many others. Sounds like somebody is holding her to a script. Maybe not a detailed script. Maybe just, you know, some paper. They just write a word on it and she can read it. I mean, because she sounds like she's moving in a direction and then she stops and she doesn't know exactly how to finish her thought. And it just seems like she's, you know, if you're that into this, then you would be able to make the impassioned speech behind it, right? So then we go back to a time where she's completely caught off guard and look at how she deflects the question to other people. Could you please uh, tell us what kind of message, what you are doing here today, what kind of message would you send by doing this to world leaders? And also kind of ask you, um, do you think it's about time that um, uh, President Trump would respond to what you have uh, said today? Um, I think, I'm sorry, what was the first question? <laughs> What's the message you would like to yeah. send to our leaders yeah. by doing what you are doing? I think what we want to send is, the message we want to send is to say that we have had enough. And, uh, anyone else wants to ask another question? I can't speak on behalf of everyone. Anyone wants to answer about the message to world leaders? I think maybe you should give some questions to the others as well. Yeah, yeah uh, some of y'all answer this because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Basically, we're going to give some questions to other people. Um, yeah, because she is a human shield for the movement and they've got more of those. Here is a Mexican climate activist who listen to her uh listen to who she attributes this economic or this uh, climate issue with it's the economies of capitalism and colonialism excellences president biden and honorable heads of state my name is shia bastida i am a climate justice activist born and raised in mexico i am one of the many young people who have already been impacted by the climate crisis such as when my hometown was hit by flooding in 2015 I come to this summit knowing that I cannot possibly communicate all of the youth voices that should be here, as I am the only one of two who will be addressing you today. As much as it is a great opportunity, it is also a great responsibility. I did not want to stand here and read our concerns and demands, because if you had been listening, you would know what they are. Nevertheless, I think that it is important for all of us to be on the same page from now and moving forward. The climate crisis is the result of those perpetuating and upholding the, the harmful systems of colonialism, oppression, capitalism, and market-oriented greenwash solutions. Yeah, she, uh, it all goes down to capitalism. No, she attributes it to colonialism. That's supposed to mean America going in and intervening all over the place as we're a colonialist and we are uh, cap evil capitalist, and I love how she even threw in greenwashed companies. So you woke corporatists out there, be ready, because even if you're going to show your green thumb, you're going to get shut down regardless. And it's funny because I, it, it made me really think about a few things. 
Where does this notion of somebody who is engaged in capitalism, somebody who think who you would think on the outside is a capitalist and succeeding in capitalism, why would they support capitalism's death in America? Why would they support communism? It's really bizarre. But if you look at, and I think I have an idea, if you look at certain things like Ben and Jerry's, take Ben and Jerry's, they love communism. Take Hollywood actors and musicians, right? And NBA stars. So we'll get back to Ben and Jerry's here in a second, but let's take a look at musicians, NBA stars, and Hollywood. So most of these people are discovered. Somebody discovers these people. So they have a talent. They're producing things. They don't understand that what they're producing is content and uh, it, it is a product of its own. They or the service of entertainment. They get discovered. They get hit with a big deal. And this is how rock music used to work before it all fell apart over the last few years, but it still rings true in Hollywood and with the sports. You know, somebody drafts somebody, they pay them a big sum of money after they've been scouted out. And then that return on investment has to come back through promotion and their talent being good. But they never find themselves in the equation of a business. And it's something I used to run into a lot playing music, most of them didn't know business whatsoever. They were just getting rooked left and right by whatever company because they didn't understand their music was, was product. It was a content uh, that was content being produced. They didn't understand merchandise, hoodies, shirts, skull caps, whatever the case may be. Concert tickets. You're paying to entertain people. Tickets to your sporting event. You're, you have to produce your talent so that you can win a game and make that entertainment happen for those people that showed up to, to play or to watch you play. Same thing happens in Hollywood. You know, you, you're not understanding your name, your band's name, your team's name. It's all a product. So you are left out of the equation and not understanding that there's a business market component to what you do. Ben and Jerry's, they just think of the talent. Oh, we make the best ice cream and they, you know, we're going to run our business. Like they don't understand they're in capitalism and it's really bad in tech. Big tech has this issue big time. And it's interesting when you listen to this individual, Richard D. Wolf, this guy is a self-proclaimed Marxist economist. I don't know what that means, but listen to him describe what these people who are big tech people what they're doing, he thinks it's communism. I can make the case that he, what he thinks is communism is actually capitalism. They just don't recognize it. But there's also the talent, uh, entrepreneurial, uh, thinking, intellectual thinking kind of creativity aspect that gets lost on those creating these items, these, these platforms, coding, whatever, down the road, these websites, whatever they were building, apps uh, in Silicon Valley, they're not looking at the business side of it. They're looking at the, the creation side. And this goes to show that they can get lost in communism and thinking that what they're doing isn't capitalist ventures in nature. 
not realizing it truly is. But listen to this Marxist economist talk about Silicon Valley and what some of these tech people did. I went out to, I went out to California a few years ago to, to Silicon Valley, to San Jose. And I met there with engineers who had walked away from big jobs. Uh, it's just like with farmers. They walked away from a big job working for Cisco or IBM or uh, any of those monster companies, earning two, three $300,000 a year, big salary. They quit. They hated it. Some guy in suits came and told them what they had to do and what software to develop. They hated that. They had to wear a tie and a jacket. They didn't want to. They were California people. They wanted to come high as a kite with Bermuda shorts, you know, and they wanted to have a Frisbee, a dog, a child, or whatever, you know, very California. They hated all this. So they quit. And they got together in somebody's job, in somebody's garage, and everybody brought a laptop. And they, and they said, we don't want to work that way. We want to come in our Bermuda shorts. We want to smoke whatever there is. We want to have our dog with us. And we want, we want, and, we, and we're going to work Monday through Thursday. We make software like we always did. Friday, we sit around and decide what to do with our little business. And they described this to me. And I said, this is wonderful. You are all communists. <laughs> they were horrified. <laughs> they wanted me to use the phrase, ready, get ready. Very American. We are entrepreneur, and we are all entrepreneurs, and this is an entrepreneurial innovation. <laughs> and I said to them, you can call it a purple giraffe. I don't care. I'm telling you, th you walked away from capitalism. You literally quit your capitalist job to form a communist enterprise according to what Marx wrote. So he seems to think that that's communism, even though I beg to differ, it is still capitalism. But he is half right. They did want to smoke their weed and you know bring their dogs to work and have this relaxed environment. But even then, you know, just because they commune together doesn't mean that they are communists. They actually are cooperating and what's the corporate word for that corporation that's right they formed a corporation they formed a group of people that had like-minded ideas wanted to work on an entrepreneurial product and even though they did commune together they uh you know uh, they still engaged in capitalist ideas creating things marketing things bringing it to market um but at the same time the collectivization of these people they are, unless they're their own government, that's when they would be considered communism, but they're not. And we didn't consent to the governed, those that we sent as governing bodies, people that we wanted to do the work of the government for us on our behalf. We didn't consent to them to operate in business. We didn't elect individuals to run soda companies and banks and, dare I say, healthcare. So even though they're communing together. They're actually forming a cooperation, a corporation, and they're working on capitalist ideas because they're building products and services, and then they're bringing it to market. Just because they're a group of people that left jobs that they were employed by doesn't mean what they're doing is communism. So Mr. Marxist economist is pretty much off the mark on that. But it also gives you insight into why you've lost your uh, YouTube videos, why you're shadow banned on Twitter, why Facebook is censoring you and suspending you for putting Patriot 
you know, focused ideas online. Why you can't have a discussion with scientists on coronavirus about how certain medications work better than others, like hydroxychloroquine, or why lockdowns don't work, why masks are BS, why social distancing is garbage, because all of a sudden they're going to take those videos and shove them away because it goes against the conventional wisdom that they want you to know. And you will now wonder, you know, you wonder why Section 230 allows them to get away with all the things they're getting away with. Well, listen to these tech people in Silicon Valley talking about what they think their responsibility is on the Internet. Actually, I was just talking about this earlier today. Um, we can never sit back and, and trust our media. We can never sit back and trust our politicians. It's their job uh, isn't necessarily to tell us the truth. And in fact, telling us the truth with politicians can be detrimental to their job because their job is to maintain their status as elected officials. And, and in the media, their job is to get a readership. And so it's our job to force them to maintain credibility. It's our job to hold them accountable for what they say. It's our job to, to call them liars when they lie and to tell them they can't have their jobs and, and continue to lie to us. Whether it's not voting for politicians who lie all the time or, or demanding in, in writing by writing to them and writing to the media that they stop lying. Whether it's abandoning media that we know we can't trust for media that's newer and, and uh, when we fact check it, we find that they are, are not lying to us. You know, whether it's when you see an article in a publication that you like to read and somebody has reported something that is factually incorrect, call them out on it in the comments section underneath. You know, write to the editor, why are you allowing this lie to be told in your, in your publication? I thought journalism was about sharing information, not spreading lies. You know, that's what we have to do. And until we do that in mass, that stuff's going to be exploited. The ability to lie to the public with impunity will always be exploited by people in power and people who can profit from it as long as they're able to maintain that power and maintain that profit by doing so. See, do you hear these people? These people understand that they have control of something. They have control of influence. They have control of information. They have control of just something. And the communists in them want them to dictate, well, Politicians lie. The news isn't telling us everything. People are, they're going to manage the controlling of whether or not somebody is saying something correct or not, which is utter BS. But that's what communists do. They're drunk with power. Check this out. Here's a little example of being drunk with power. Michigan State Police pulled over Michigan Democrat lawmaker April 2nd for drunk driving. This is the jewel Representative Jewell, he threatened to call Governor Whitmer on the spot. The 911 calls came pouring in as the Democrat state representative's black Chevy Tahoe sped down I-96. For almost 50 miles, the vehicle with the vanity plates elected was driving so recklessly that at least one person saw him go the wrong way before going into a ditch. When police arrived at the scene, according to MIR News or MIRS News, Democrat State Representative Jewel Jones and his unidentified female passenger were found with their pants down 
as the Tahoe remained in a ditch. Jones was, quote, holding the woman up, quote, near the passenger side door. According to the police report obtained by the news organization, the woman's pants were down as she vomited and Jules' pants were partially down when a paramedic arrived at the crash site. Police engaged in a struggle with Mr. Jones, and at one point, as Jones was on the ground struggling with uh, multiple officers, he shouts, let me sit up, N-word. Meanwhile, the woman was unable to stand on her own and was essentially unresponsive, plastered is another word, as paramedics tried to administer care, the police report noted. The uh, The paramedic told police that Jewel identified both himself and his passenger as, quote, people of importance and flashed his wallet badge, as the report noted. When a state police trooper asked for Jewel's identification, Jones or Jones for his identification, Jones refused. At one point, prompting the trooper to tell Jones, don't be dumb. During the exchange, Jones responds, I can't do that when asked again for his driver's license and ID. At that point, the officers had had enough. They put his, their hands on Jones, wrestled him to the ground. Keep in mind, a gun was also inside his car, according to the report. Uh, it was in the cup holder. Jones continued to resist and was brought to the ground by state troopers who told him to stop resisting. This is when the Democrat threatened police, saying, I'll call Governor Whitmer right now, he continued. When I call Gretchen, I need y'all's IDs and badges. In addition to invoking Whitmer's name, Jones tells troopers, I am not giving you my arm unless you shoot me. You shoot me. I'll get up, according to the police report. (laughs) Officers uh, do get Jones into handcuffs, and he is eventually placed in the back of the Livingston County Sheriff's deputy's vehicle along. uh, Although the video shows he resisted that request as well, he eventually was transported to the county jail where he was held overnight. The level of hypocrisy by Democrats here in Michigan is stunning. Their mantra is it's rules for thee, but not for me. And this is what I was talking about. It, it, it doesn't even have to be an elected position. If you have Silicon Valley leaders and tech gurus and tech creators, they think that what they should be deemed as things that are allowable are allowable because they say so. But then they want to dictate how their laws are never and their rules are never used on them. And that is the problem and the difference between capitalism and communism, because capitalism is a perfect system. It's we as flawed humans that mess it up. We make the deals with the politicians to do the kickbacks. We uh, undermine our staff and not pay them fully what they should be paid or what have you there, you know, injustices like that happen. That's because we as humans are flawed people. That's not because capitalism is flawed. Communism requires a benevolent group of people or individual to divvy out to the rest of the group. Somebody has to do it. It doesn't happen on its own. And when that person is fundamentally flawed and looking out for their own interest, who do you think benefits the most? The guy at the top and everybody else who's being handed their their fair share, they're going to end up getting the short end of the stick, although everybody gets the short end of the stick except for the guy at the top. See, that's the thing with capitalism. It's a decentralized network. It's a decentralized way of governance. 
And, you know, you think leftists would love decentralization. They love it in their NGOs. They love it in their activist groups. They love it in their cryptocurrency, but they don't love it when it comes to governance. They want one strong hand to come down because it is, it is the replacement of God. And not to get too preachy, but, you know, everybody in life isn't going to have the same outcomes. You know, some people are just filthy rich. They do something, they, they get filthy rich for it, but then they're learning a different lesson in their life that we don't know of and they don't know of. And then maybe they find out at the end of it, maybe it's a, a lesson that they're going through that someone else witnesses and then they learn from it. Whatever the case may be, God's got the plan and we go through our trials and tribulations. You know, some, some bands become Nirvana, some bands become like Clutch. They have a good following and they play to good packed shows, but they don't have number one hits. But that doesn't matter. Everybody learns in their own way. Everybody has their own uh, crosses to bear. You can't mandate that by a government by making everything equal, by making equitable situations. All you can do is provide the opportunity and let people do what they're going to do. And that's the problem with communism. It doesn't work because it doesn't factor in the fundamental flaw of the human being. But we're under its attack on a daily basis. And they're the ones who are influencing a lot of situations. And so we have to take note of that. We have to realize that communism is on the run because China is on the run. China is running the run, basically. And it's their virus that caused everything to shut down. It's their economy that they've slowly been purchasing away from, from America. I mean, it's... We have to realize that they're the ones buying our politicians. That's why our politicians are making policies that are against us as Americans. And they're demanding that we don't eat red meat. And they're demanding that we turn our heat down to 60 degrees. They're demanding that we drive either electric cars or get on a freaking light rail. They're demanding control. But in the end, capitalism allows us to have the opportunities to do the things that we feel we should do. And that is what they're trying to reject. And China knows this. China's very inept on how to uh, facilitate a good situation. So I, I actually like Jeffrey Lord was talking about capitalism and communism uh, in a little short piece. He said, capitalism and socialism or communism are two words that come up in conversation more and more. People often don't clearly understand what the words mean and how they relate to everyday life. Capitalism, at least, of the free market variety, is simply the voluntary exchange of goods and services for money, other forms of compensation. At its heart, capitalism happens when you agree to work for a business or try to convince customers to patronize your business. <clears throat> Socialism, on the other hand, is at the heart of the form of the collectivism. Rather than determining how to best have your needs met, an outside force, the government, makes that decision for you. Now, it's not just the government. It's the woke corporations. It is uh, entertainment. It is sports industries like NBA and uh, MLB and NFL. Sometimes the government's decision involves something as, you know, every day uh, as how much earnings you're allowed to keep as far as your income goes. Other times, the decision the government makes for you is much more profound 
and involves how and where your children will be educated. But that's the thing. What we have to realize is China is trying to bring about the end of America, the end of the West, and the rise of the Chinese dominance and their form of communism, where it's social monitoring, uh, your every move is monitored, your every move is, is graded, and you're determined whether or not you can have certain privileges. Our rights come from God. They're natural rights. That means they were born into them. We're not dictated by a, gov- a, a government as to what we are allowed to do. But they're going to make the push. And China has already stepped in that direction. I mean, take a look at what China is doing with our, our, uh, our media. You know, back in the day, and I tell everybody to get this book, Paul, Dr. Paul Kengor wrote a book called Dupes. He was actually focused on uh, researching Frank Marshall Davis when Obama came into prominence. And while doing so, he came across a treasure trove of KGB documents that were declassified and were in the uh, National Archives. And that's when he figured out and put the pieces together on how the Soviets and the communists were infiltrating America, going all the way back to the Bolshevik Revolution. So they didn't waste no time. And what they did was they were taking tastemakers. They were taking journalists. They were taking musicians, uh, fashion designers. They were taking all these people, putting them on boats, taking them over to Russia, taking them through what's called the Potomkin villages. These were villages that were built up regardless of whether or not the budgets could handle it, regardless of whether or not the government had the income to do what they were trying to do. They built these extravagant town squares that while everybody else was destitute just a couple of miles away and they would run these people through and wine and dine them and send them back to America. And they go, man, communism is great. It's how we got John Dewey and the public education system. He was wined and dined and he came back and reformed public education into a godless uh, communist venture. But look what they're doing now. Look what China's doing. This is from the national pulse. Named in shame, the journalist who went on Chinese Communist Party junkets then delivered favorable coverage. Unearthed documents from one of the leading Chinese Communist Party propaganda groups reveal the names of mainstream U.S. journalists taking junkets from the group in exchange for favorable coverage. The trips often came just before opinion editorials and news reports excusing Chinese Communist Party crimes or opposing trade showdowns with the nation. The China-United States Exchange Foundation was founded by the vice chairman of the highest-ranking entity overseeing the Chinese Communist Party's United Front Department, an effort which aims to co-opt and neutralize sources of potential opposition to the policies and authority of the Chinese government. So they're whining and dining our media. Now you wonder, why were so many scientists on board with the draconian lockdowns that had absolutely no scientific evidence of working behind it whatsoever. Why were all these scientists decrying hydroxychloroquine and then coming out later and saying, eh, it's good. Why was there a group of resistant scientists within the CDC trying to undermine the Trump administration? Well, from the Washington times, hundreds of us scientists feared compromised by China. Now, remember Dr. Fauci was working with the Wuhan lab Remember, Harvard got busted doing research with China. 
More than 500 federally funded scientists are under investigation for being compromised by China and other foreign powers, the National Institute of Health revealed. The federal health officials told Senate committee that they were fighting to keep up the large-scale Chinese efforts to corrupt American researchers and steal intellectual property that scientists hope will lead to biomedical advances. So China is in the back pockets of our scientists, too. And they have paid off our government. Our government has installed its leader. Our corporations are on the side of this fraudulent government and on the side of communism. And what do we get out of it? From the New York Times, the Department of Homeland Security will undergo an internal review to root out white supremacy and extremism in its ranks as part of a larger effort to combat extremist ideology in the federal government. The task of identifying extremists throughout the United States and specifically in government agencies has come to the top of President Biden's agenda since the January 6th insurrection. We recognize that domestic violent extremism and their ideology, the extremist ideologies that spew it, are prevalent in America. We have a responsibility, given what we do, to ensure that the influence does not go beyond our department. And remember, they're using the post office, the freaking post office. They're using them to spy on social media because I think they're just sitting around. Have you ever been in a government building and watched government workers? They're playing Farmville and they're dicking around on computers, not really doing their work. So maybe they turn around and said, hey, we got to get these guys doing something. How about we uh, spy on behalf of dear leader Biden? Well, they're looking at your social media post and they're reporting back the post office. This is how far they will go to take the deep state and go after patriots. And you have to realize they're coming after us because they want to put us in a position to where if we fight back, if we stand up, we're already vilified. We're already neutralized. We're already looked at as extremists. And the public opinion would go against any sort of standing up, any sort of revolution to the ongoing onslaught of our God-given rights and the push for this fraudulent administration. So keep that in mind when everybody's going, well, it's going to be time to take to the streets. Guess what? They're already vilifying your efforts before you even get out the door. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart. Get the blog, adriansladeshow.com. Go on Roku. Download the free Adrian Slade Show Roku channel in your streaming show, uh, store. And also, you can donate to the show, anchor.fm slash Adrian Slade slash support. Leave a message for the show, one nine two nine go go usa We'll see you guys.